Romans chapter 1. We're going to begin at verse 8. Let me pray for a moment. Mighty God, we are opening your holy and inerrant word. God, these words have been recorded for men and women now for centuries. God, cause our hearts to understand or teach us to, to know you and to understand you by spirits working through your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'm going to read from verse 8 where Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Making request, if by any means now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purpose to come unto you King James says, but was let hither to, or until now I haven't been able to do so, is what that means. That I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. The Romans are Gentiles by and large. Verse 14, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So, as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Three large uh, points, just to kind of keep our thoughts flowing and and watching the way that, that this is unfolded before us. Thankfulness being the first area, the second Part of this is going to be his prayer. So first, thankfulness. Second, prayer. And then finally, apostolic debt. What is the the debt of the apostle here? We'll look at these three sections. Thankfulness is uh, really, we finally are, are beginning to get into into the personal nature of this letter between Paul and the, and the people he's sending it to. An amazing introduction between verses uh, 1 to 7. And then finally, we get here to verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So, One of the things I want you to notice we made mention of in the last hour, um, he's literally thanking these Christians in Rome for them. He says, I thank my God for you. It seems like a simple enough thing to say, but I want you to notice it is a very doctrinally grounded sort of thing for him to say. I want to continue to try and encourage you to become 
ever more deep in your knowledge of and your confidence of doctrine because doctrine forms your words. It, it forms your expectations. It forms your understanding of the world around you. So part of the doctrine that we see being unfolded here is he says, first, I thank my God. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. It might not be an intuitive thing to you that God, the God, your Savior, your Redeemer, if you have come to faith in Christ, is the only right explanation that there are any Christians in Rome. In other words, he realizes he's writing to a body of Christians there in Rome and he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. You realize that that is the fundamental reason that there are Christians in Rome. is because God has called them to himself. This is a doctrinal reality. Doctrine means teaching. You don't know that he's the one you should thank unless it's revealed to us in his word. He, he gives thanks. He's thankful. This is another area of doctrine. And this is another reality of conversion. He says, I thank my God for you. Um, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 20, I'm just going it's, to, it's not even a whole sentence there in Ephesians 5. But he's speaking to the Christians in Ephesus where he says, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So number one here in the phrase that we see in Ephesians chapter 5 is this, the reality of thankfulness being practiced in the apostle. Constant thankfulness, giving thanks always for good things or for all things. Now, this is one of the huge challenges in the Christian life. I've been spending some time thinking about this week because, honestly, every single one of you and I have things happen to us maybe every week, and you would think, well, that wasn't a good thing. I don't feel thankful about it. It made me feel sad. Or I experienced a loss in it, a financial loss, a personal loss, an emotional loss. The Bible's teaching which is a revelation of God and the mind and the wisdom of God to you is that you as a person who is coming to know him, has come to know him and is growing in your knowledge of him, is that we give thanks to him in all things. That seems impossible, doesn't it? Because when things take a bad turn for you, there, there's nothing in you that wants to give thanks for that. The Bible teaches you to give thanks in all things. Did you hear him saying that? Giving thanks always for all things to God. I'm not going to attempt to go into all of how you are to apply that to your broken heart or to your loss or to your confusion and in, in, in why this terrible thing that's happened in your life should result in your being able to give thanks. 
let it suffice for a moment here that it is something that God wants us to do. Another thing we see evident here in Ephesians 5, we just saw it in uh, Romans 1.8. Romans 1.8 says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Ephesians 5.20 says, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Sunday school, we've been studying the mediatory work of Jesus Christ. Christ is the mediator. When you come to God, you don't come to God on your terms. You don't come to God one-to-one. There's a mediator who makes your presence before God possible. It's Jesus Christ. It's evident in both of these verses. This is a doctrinal reality. The Lord Jesus Christ is a high priest. He's the only high priest. He is a mediator between God and man. When, when you come to God, you come to him through Christ. When you pray to God, you pray to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 28-32 is another place where we're going to kind of think about giving thanks in all things. How it, I'm going to give you a tiny bit of help. How do, we, how do we understand this, being able to give thanks in all things? We'll just touch on it very briefly here, Romans 8, 28-32. This really has to do with the sovereignty of God, the degree of control God has over the events that are unfolding in the world is beyond your ability to know. Romans 8:28 says, "We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. We know that all things work together for good." For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. Now, let me let me help you see the contrast here. I mean, from the hip, on the surface, is God the Father sending God the Son to the cross a good thing? It's, just, it's one of the most horrible things you can picture. The crucifixion of, of even a criminal would seem to be a, a horrible thing to you and I. We wouldn't want to see it. But it is God's will that the Son died on the cross. So to help you see the contrast, what part of what is, is evident here in our passage here is that through the worst thing that could have happened, the innocent, sinless Son of God going to the cross, from the worst thing that you can imagine, turned into the redemption and the atonement and the forgiveness of sin for those who repent of sin and put their trust in him. Do you, do you see, there, there's almost an irony to this, isn't it? it? It's the most horrible thing. It's an awful, unthinkable thing for the innocent, gracious Son of God to be put to death on a cross. But listen to how, listen to how the inspired word speaks about this again here. What shall we say to these things, foreknown, predestined, etc.? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, how 
shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So what I want you to see between the first part of the passage we read there in verse 28 and the last part we read there in 32, when things seem to have taken a turn of some kind that seems very unwelcome, we can confidently say we know that all things work together for good. For those, to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. Don't doubt his word on that. Don't doubt his power and his sovereignty in that he is indeed and truly in control. Now, thankfulness is, is the ready gratitude for God's goodness for his people and for his purposes. Thankfulness, which we're pulling out of the first passage we read there in verse 8, thankfulness, I give thanks always. Thankfulness is this gratitude. He is never not good. He is never not accomplishing his purposes. Thankfulness is a recognition and a realization of this truth. And you will frequently, even as a Christian, be tempted to doubt this. You'll be tempted to wonder, is he really in control? Is he really in charge? But he's never not good. He's never not working out his purposes. Thankfulness is the opposite of complaining and discontent. Thankfulness is the opposite of complaining and discontent. Although Paul's first choice in regards to his relationship to the Romans, although his first choice would have been to come and see them a long time ago, which is evident in our passage, he's longed to see them. He wants to go and see them. He remains trusting in God's timing and in God's sovereignty. That's a slight thing to endure compared to some of the difficult things you may have to endure in your life, but it's a, it's a great example of this truth. It's a great example of Paul's trust and his knowledge of God's sovereignty and how he is resting in God's timing to accomplish these things. So his thankfulness is a, is a doctrinal reality in his life. He is thankful for them. He is thankful for these Christians through the only mediator between God and men, which is 1 Timothy 2.5. 1 Timothy 2.5 is where we would read, there is one God and one mediator between God and men. Remember, the Lord Jesus Christ is God the Son of John chapter 1. 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and we work our way down through chapter 1. And I think it's by the time we get to 14, and the Word became flesh. That is the second person of the invisible, omnipotent Spirit God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and dwelt among us. Okay? There is one God and one mediator, that is God in the flesh. One mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, which is emphasizing the, the full humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's prayer is thankful. His prayer is through the mediator. And he's thankful 
Look at what he's thankful for. I thank my God, through Jesus Christ, for you all, that your faith is spoken of. Their faith being spoken of is, is really the reputation of these Christians in Rome. He does know quite a few of them personally, which, again, we, we've looked at a little bit in Romans chapter 15. We, we see he names many of them by name. He does know many of these Christians. There's many more whose names that he doesn't know. But what he's telling us here is they have a reputation. Their faith is being spoken of in the whole world. Spoken up throughout the whole world is what my translation says. You remember why grace and apostleship was given by Christ, which I think is in verse 3? Do you remember why Christ gave grace and apostleship? Let me find I'll put my finger on the, on the verse. Through him, verse 5, it says, we have received grace and apostleship. Why? For obedience of faith. Why did God give grace and apostleship to the church, to Christians, to the world? Why did he give that? For obedience of faith. So when you think about that, when we think about this, when he says your faith is being spoken about throughout the whole world, do you think that there's some connection between what we read here in verse 5? Of course there is. The reason God gave grace and apostleship is for the obedience of faith. So when he says your faith is being spoken of throughout the whole world, that means there is something tangible to their faith. Their faith works. Their faith speaks. Their faith is tangible. Their faith is the obedience of faith. Otherwise, there wouldn't be anything to say. Otherwise, the things being spoken of about them throughout the whole world wouldn't be said. What kinds of things would be spoken of? If we were in the town down the road, or if we were in the town across the bay from Rome, and we were hearing about the faith of these Christians in Rome, what kinds of things would they be speaking of? What would they be saying? Something along the lines of, I, I, I pulled this one out of uh, Hebrews 11, 7. And what I was considering is, is what does faith look like? When faith is noteworthy, when faith is genuine. Hebrews 11, 7 said, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah became the heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. How do you know? How can you be confident Noah actually was saved? He built the ark. Why? He believed. He was warned. And he went to work. How long did it take for him to exercise his faith from the time he heard of the threat, which is another word for a promise, when God promised he would flood the world, how long did it take for him to finish working out his faith? 120 years. You can go back and look at it yourself. It's a long time to walk by faith, if you ask me. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 6. Here's another way where we might see faith being practiced in such a way that it would turn into this good report. 
1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 6 says this, Love, love suffers long and is kind. If I say you suffer long, what does that mean? What does it mean to say somebody suffers long? It means they're patient. Is suffering fun? Raise your hand if you think suffering is fun. Okay, suffering long means you are enduring something that's challenging to endure. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. You ever find your little envier being kicked into gear when somebody's being loved or when somebody's being shared with or somebody's being favored in a way that you wanted to be favored? In a way that you think you deserve to be favored or loved? Do you feel your envy kicking in? But love doesn't do that. Love doesn't envy. When, when, when love sees someone else being favored or blessed in a way they wanted, they rejoice for that person's favor and for their blessing. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It's not cocky and arrogant. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. I raise this passage here because the believing knows this passage is here. The believing knows that God's spirit has revealed to you and I what real love is. God has taught you and I what love is. One of the reasons God has taught you what real love is, is so when your flesh produces envy, your little alarm should go off and your little alarm should be saying you're not loving. When you're feeling boastful, when you're not suffering long, when you're not kind, your little alarm should be going off and you should say, I'm, I'm being tempted and threatened in the flesh to walk in the flesh, to live in the flesh. And you should realize that for me to walk in this way would be to walk in unbelief. I need to walk in love. I need to walk in endurance. I need to walk in patience. I need to suffer long. So when, when, when Paul tells us about these Christians here in Rome whose faith is being told of throughout the world, these kinds of things were the thing in the report. All, I, all I'm showing you is what does faith look like? What do, you, what do you see when you see faith? What do you hear when you hear faith? What kind of words do you hear? What kind of actions do you see? We see the kind of person who says they'll do something and they do it. The, the psalmist, Psalm 15, 14, speaks about a person who says he will do something and he does it even if he suffers loss for doing it. Sometimes keeping your word hurts a little bit, doesn't it? Sometimes it costs you something you didn't think it was going to cost you when you gave your word. Do you ever notice Christians, do you ever notice people or situations like this? Do you notice believers like this and you mention that kind of faith? 
Do you speak about that? Do you notice that? And does that become part of your conversation because somehow that was true of these Christians in Rome? People saw these Christians in Rome and their faith was being talked about in the whole world. Do do people talk about Christians who gossip? Do people talk about Christians who are angry or who are lazy or who get drunk? Do people talk about Christians who get drunk? Do people talk about Christians who are particularly angry or gossipers? Of course they do. The reason I raise this question is, is what if that's the reputation of the church? Or what if that is the reputation of the Christian? That kind of report. Well, <laughs> nobody's going to say, wow, look at their faith, unless it's in a pretty derogatory manner. Be like, those guys are a bunch of liars. Those guys are a bunch of hypocrites. People would talk about that mainly because they already know Christians don't do that, don't they? Unbelievers know you shouldn't be a hypocrite. And when a Christian's a hypocrite, that's the worst kind of all. Thankfulness. Thankfulness here that Paul is is speaking to us about is a byproduct of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. His thankfulness is that their faith is being reported of in the whole world. He sees that the, the, the connection between what they say they believe and what is going on through their hands and through their mouths and through their lives, he sees that this belief that they have is a genuine belief because they're living it out day to day. And the people around those Christians in Rome know that this is true and, and he's thankful to it for them. Faith and the obedience of faith are, are, are two sides of a coin. Christian action isn't salvation. And, and claim of faith isn't salvation. But faith that believes the Lord Jesus Christ and walks with the Lord Jesus Christ is saving faith. They, they, they can't be separated from one another. What would people say they see and hear about your faith? What is, what is the reputation you have in regards to how you practice your faith through your mouth or through your hands or, or through your giving, through your patience and endurance. What, what would your report be? This is, this is a lesson you and I can draw from this passage here. It's an area where we could take on some self-reflection and, and see, am I practicing what I say I believe? Or am I acting like I don't believe? Thankfulness to God through Jesus Christ for people of faith is a thing that brings glory to God. Paul is thankful for them. He's thanking God through Jesus Christ for them. Their lives have turned into glory to God, which really is ultimately the call of believers to glorify God with our lives, to glorify Him 
with our mouths, with the things we speak, proclaiming his works. Psalm 139:14. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. Here's a, a man who with his mouth just proclaims the works and the wonders of God and his glory. And we see that in another believer. When you hear a person living and speaking faith in Christ, we, we speak that back to God. We thank God for the work he's doing in their lives. Maybe you see a, a believer stumbling and you ask God to help them. You pray about speaking to them, maybe. Paul is so happy. He's so full of joy to know about this faithful church in Rome. Verse 9 goes on to tell us about his prayer. He says, God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayer. He prays for these Christians and he desires to spend time with these Christians. He prays without ceasing. He mentions these always in his prayers. And interestingly, he says, God is my witness. It's almost like making an oath. He's telling them and he wants them to be very confident that he prays for them without ceasing, that he prays for them constantly. God is my witness, he says, whom I serve with my spirit. Or, in other words, I serve with all my heart. What I do with my life is that I serve God. Why does he pray over and over? Why do you think he prays without ceasing? Why does he pray and pray and pray? Well, it's because he's a man who has been taught to pray without ceasing. Praying without ceasing is a matter of obedience. Praying without ceasing is a matter of believing that God has asked us to do that and he expects us to do that. When we believe God at his word, we would pray in this way. His prayer that he is often praying, very frequently praying, is that he might impart, is what it says in verse 11. He wants to see them, verse 10. I want to make a journey and come to you. Why? Well, I want to impart to you some spiritual gift to the end that you may be established. These seem to be the main things about his prayer. He want, Imparting means sharing or imparting means distributing. And established, I like the definition you established here, to set in certain position or direction. To establish them would mean to set them in a certain position or direction and to render, to render mentally steadfast. So to establish them is to affect their thinking and their outlook, that they would be steadfast. A moment ago, we were speaking about giving thanks in all things from Romans 8. And one of the results of being taught learning to walk with the Lord, as we become steadfast. We learn how to endure that kind of difficulty or hardship. Paul, he gets out of bed in the morning and he does what he does every day. Paul's 
desire in his life is that he would build up Christians, that he would establish churches, that he would strengthen Christians. This is always on his mind and on his heart. In verse 12, he speaks about his desire that he is mutually encouraged with you, Romans, by the mutual faith, both of you and me. We see that his interest is in their faith. What do they believe and how do they go about believing it? This is constantly on his mind and on his heart. He wants to impact their faith. Now, I mentioned to you once already in verse 5, he speaks about God having given grace and apostleship for obedience of faith. And what has that resulted of in Paul's own life? Constant prayer for these Christians in Rome. It motivates him. He's praying for them constantly. God has put a goal and a, and a mission on his mind. And we see these, these two things. He, he hopes to impart to them, which he says is a gift. I don't take that to mean he wants to go and, and, and he himself give them some spiritual gift. A man can't do that. I, I can't give you a spiritual gift. Men can't give spiritual gifts. But he can teach them and he can help them in their understanding and their knowledge of the gospel and how they walk with the Lord. Help them to learn how to live a life of faith. When we're thinking about this being established, I do want you to look with me at Ephesians 4, 11 to 15. Spells it out a little bit more clearly here. Ephesians 4, 11 to 15. We look at this same thing from a slightly different angle. Why did God give apostles to the church? Or what is the church for? Why did God give apostles? What is the church for? Look at Ephesians 4.11. And he himself gave some to be apostles. God has given apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints. That's for it's similar to a word like military training. The equipping of the saints is giving them the tools they need, giving them the, the training they need for the works of ministry. Why has God given those things? Apostles, pastors, for equipping of the saints. For the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And I'm going to insert the phrase so that the Christian becomes the perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Perfect meaning complete or mature. Okay, a Christian getting saved is a baby who hardly knows how to eat, hardly knows how to walk. And the church has been given so that that baby can become mature. So that baby can become complete. Verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. You see how being established is being accomplished there in verse 14? How does a Christian becoming uh, not tossed about? How is a 
Christian not going to be carried about with every wind of doctrine by being under his apostle Paul, by being in his church where his pastor is. That's how it's going to happen. You're carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But in the church, by your apostles, by the pastors, speaking the truth in love, the Christian may grow up in all things into him who is the head. That's what it would mean to establish. That's what it means to be established. See how this is where you find your direction in your Christian life. This is how you find your mission. This is how you find your work and your life of faith. Now, real quickly, in verse 13, he says, I would not have you be ignorant. I've often purposed to come to you. That, or but, was let hitherto, or but haven't been able to. That it might have some fruit among you, even as among other Gentiles. I'm a debtor, he says. So I'm going to focus on this idea where he says, I'm a debtor, in verse 14. Both to Greeks and barbarians, wise and unwise. So as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Why did he say he has often planned to go to them and that he is a debtor and therefore I'm ready to preach the gospel to you at Rome? I've often planned to go to you and I'm a debtor. What is a debtor? If you're a debtor, what does that mean? You owe. You owe. When he says, I am a debtor, who, who does he owe? Who does he owe? He says, I am a debtor to Greeks and barbarians. Those are like nationalities for Paul. Greeks and barbarians are two kinds of Gentiles. Why does he owe them? He owes them, he says. It's just like you owe your car payment or your mortgage payment. He owes. Why? Who does he owe it to? Well, he has to do it for them. Why? It's his office. He has been given this calling. He's been given this commandment. Therefore, he said, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Paul's office was for this purpose. He is explaining to them, I have been appointed to this. I must do this. I am in debt to you by God to do this. It informs, really, those people in Rome that there is a purpose in this Apostle Paul. He's telling us about it. He must do this. Those people in Rome are hearing God has something to say to us by the Apostle. God is the one who has ordained this work. It's not Paul who has come up with this. Paul is a debtor. How does Paul pay his debt? He serves his debt by teaching and preaching to Greeks and barbarians. His administration, his job is God-ordained. Now, some will say, well, I don't believe that. And actually, some said they didn't believe that in Corinth. That was something the Christians in Corinth would say, oh, Who's Paul? Because there were some people pretending to be what Paul called super apostles in Corinth. 
And Paul would write and he would defend his apostleship. He would say, well, I am an apostle. You know what that means? I am a prophet. God has put this in me to say, and if I don't say it, I myself am disobeying what I must do. It is my debt. And so when you hear this man, Paul, must speak to me because God has obligated him to it, that obligates you to listen to the man. That's how you listen to God. That's how you obey God. Is through Paul is called an apostle in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, they're called prophets. If you ignore the prophet, if you disobey the prophet, what happened under the Old Covenant? What if you decided you didn't want to listen to the prophet under the Old Covenant? You want to argue with Isaiah. You want to argue with Jeremiah. You want to argue with Moses. What happens when you stand opposed to the prophet? You stand opposed to God himself. You deny the word of God himself. You, you go your own way at your own peril. This, this is what's underneath this, this statement that he is saying to the Romans. The office of a prophet is a very hard calling for the prophet. And often it's hard for those who hear the prophet. Sometimes the apostle would say something to those Christians and they would not like it. You will hear things in this book of Romans about sin and about your flesh. You will hear things that will offend you. You know why Paul says he is a debtor? He, he already knows you're going to be offended at some of the things that he's saying. He knows that you're going to be offended. The people that the prophet speaks to dislike him. They dislike his perspective. They dislike his narrowness. They dislike his exclusiveness. They dislike his willingness to call so many they dislike and even hate his willingness to tell them to acknowledge their sin and repent. They hate it. We will find that over and over in all the Gospels. When the apostle calls out your sin, you have two choices. Hear him and believe and repent or shake your fist at the prophet. And thus shake your fist at God himself. But God has given this as a blessing. You know, you can't argue with the truth. We'll close with this. You can't argue with the truth. If Paul is an apostle, that means he's a prophet. You cannot argue with the truth. You, might, you don't have to like it. If the doctor says, look, you stop smoking today... Or you will be dead by this day next year. Now if he knows what he's talking about, he's probably right. Now, what if, what if you really like your cigarettes? What if, it's, what if it's something else that you have to stop doing? Let's leave the cigarette thing out. What if it's something else? What if God's prophet says... If you live in your sin, if you will not repent of your sin, if you will not seek me for the righteousness of Christ, you will die in your sin. 
What if the prophet tells you you're going to die in your sin? Is that going to make you mad? And make you say, well, who, who made you so high and mighty, Mr. Prophet? Who made you so righteous, Mr. Prophet? Paul's going to say that in this letter. He is going to point out sin after sin after sin. Every man, woman, and child on earth must stand before the judge and show the judge your merit. Here's my merit, judge. Here's my goodness, judge. Here's my righteousness, judge. I only lied a little bit. I only did little sins. I only did bad sins sometimes. You guys think that the judge can look on a couple little fornications, a couple little adulteries, a couple little thefts, and give a pass? No. What kind of holiness, what kind of righteousness does God require? We're about to see very soon here in Romans, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Look down here, we're, we're right there. Verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. For them that believe, the Jew first and also the Greek, why? This is the key to Romans. If you haven't listened all morning or all year, listen. This is the key to Romans. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Do you realize that is the only kind of righteousness that equates to salvation? The righteousness of God. If you come to God with your pocket full of coins and lint and righteousness and say, here's what I got. It's going to burn. It, it, it can't hold up. Paul's debt is to teach and explain the gospel that people would understand what is going to happen when you get to your last day? What's it like to meet God at the end? What's it like to bring God your own righteousness instead of accepting the righteousness of Christ? This is what Paul's life is all about. Paul is teaching us in the very last lines of our sermon today. He's a debtor. And he must teach and speak the gospel. That means you must hear and believe the gospel. You must. There's no other way by which we can be saved. But it's a great way by which you can be saved. And take the righteousness of God in Christ. The just shall live by faith, not by their own righteous works. Let's pray. Oh, great God, I thank you for the apostle. I thank you for his perseverance and his hard work and his labor. I thank you for his endurance to endure ridicule and beating. I thank you, dear God, that men like him, John, Peter, they endured so much to repeat the words of Christ to share the gospel with us, God. We love you and we praise you. We thank you for showing us the light of Christ and the truth of your word. In his name we pray, amen.
may be dismissed. <laughs>